You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 322, The Battling Bastards of Bataan. The good news was that MacArthur was safe in Australia. The bad news was that the Japanese were tightening their blockade around the Philippines. Still, the Allies did try to get supplies to the Bataan defenders by landing goods on Cebu, an island in between Mindanao and Luzon. It was hoped that if supplies could get to Cebu, then their inter-island steamers could take it the rest of the way. A decent plan, but as only three of the six ships from Australia got through, the remaining vessels were captured or sunk, it would not be enough to keep the defenders in the fight. The point is MacArthur did not get enough of what he wanted, so he blamed FDR and he blamed Marshall, but they were trying to help. There was simply not enough naval craft to make the run, much less guarantee it would get to Corregidor safely. It was the same with submarines and planes. Supplies were being dropped off, but not enough for the Bataan garrison to hold out for months or actually go over to the offensive. Besides the general blaming the president and the chief of staff, there was also miscommunication, or rather a differing of perspectives between the two groups. When MacArthur left Corregidor and placed General Wainwright in charge of the defending troops, the White House took that to mean he was now the man in charge, locally. Whereas the general still wanted to directly control the area, he would just operate through Wainwright. So, with this mix-up in place, the White House was about to promote Wainwright to lieutenant general, as was proper for that position. MacArthur heard about this and tried to cut it off at the knees, but 
he was going up against Marshall, who was backed by the president, and, most important of all, common sense. It is a military maxim to trust the guy on the spot. MacArthur could not command from a location almost 2,000 miles away. Besides, he was now in charge of the General Headquarters Southwest Pacific Area, or SWPA. No, Wainwright had been selected by the General, hence he would be, from now on, the new commander of the U.S. forces in the Philippines, or USFIP. And USFIP had wiped out MacArthur's USAFFE, that is, U.S. Armed Forces Far East. As such, MacArthur was disgruntled, but Wainwright was now in charge, so he chose Major General Edward King to be the commander of forces on Luzon. Either way, MacArthur was now gone from Corregidor. Supplies were running out, and the casualties were growing. If that wasn't enough to lower morale on its own, the daily artillery attacks and bombing raids certainly did. So, general homicide was growing stronger, and literally growing, while the majority of Wainwright's men, about 79,500 troops, were sick or wounded. The new direct commander, Major General Edward King, had, as the bulk of his defensive line, Philippine Army troops, which forced King to rely on the Philippine Division and his remaining M3 tanks to act as his strategic reserve. The lull between the two groups of combatants remained. But whereas the Allied side of no man's land was losing its vitality, the Japanese were being enthused with reinforcements, food from Manila, and water brought to the front lines. Time, which had been believed to be an ally to the Allies, now swung to the invaders. But before battle could be joined with the Japanese, the Americans had to get their own house in order first. MacArthur wanted to keep direct control of the fighting on Bataan through a deputy chief of staff on Corregidor. But was Wainwright in control or not, as in the supplies or the large guns on Corregidor, who was controlling them? This situation required a contest of wills before it could be settled. MacArthur, not that he had told the War Department back in Washington, put Lewis Baby of the U.S. Army in charge on Corregidor, but really, he was to jump when the general told him to. However, the War Department promoted Baby from colonel to brigadier general on March 17th. This was so the men would be led by a higher-ranking officer. This was supposed to help with their morale. But now with this promotion, Wainwright was Baby's subordinate. Not that Wainwright knew this. So when he went to Corregidor to get some supplies, he was told, No, sir. But still, no. This snafu was sent back to Washington, who really didn't have time to play games of ego. The response was sent to Baby that said, When Washington sends a message to Baton for the commanding officer... It was meant for Wainwright, period. From now on, MacArthur was to have supervisory control only over Corregidor, which was not the same thing as actual command. Still, it had been MacArthur who had put Baby in command, but had left Wainwright in command, officially. Unofficially. Who knows? 
The messengers were quite confused at times as to who to deliver things to. But Baby could see which way the wind was blowing. So on the night of March 20th, he called Wainwright and told him of his promotion and that there were a few messages waiting for him on Corregidor, now that he was in command and now that all of this had been cleared up. And Wainwright, knowing how to play the game, made Baby his chief of staff, thus pacifying another wounded ego. Then Wainwright confirmed that the Navy, under Admiral Rockwell in this theater, was answerable to him. So it was all worked out, until it wasn't. Only after a unity of command had been established or re-established in this case. Only then did MacArthur explain his command structure to General Marshall. General Marshall, needless to say, found this arrangement of a supreme commander now controlling one area of his command in minute detail unacceptable. But when Marshall says something is unacceptable, he is really saying something much worse, something much more intense. Marshall explained what MacArthur was trying to do, and thus FDR found it unacceptable as well. So Marshall sent a message to MacArthur about how unacceptable it was for an overall commander who was now responsible for Australia, the Philippines, New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and the Netherlands Islands to fuss over one part of his vast area. MacArthur agreed to this, mostly because... He didn't have a choice, and he was talking to Marshall. So, as things stood, Wainwright was to move to Corregidor to assume overall command. Yes, MacArthur was his superior, but had been warned not to over-engage with Wainwright's command. And as for the troops on Bataan, they were now under the direction of Major General Edward P. King, Jr. The Major General was an artilleryman when he was chosen for this. However, he had as much experience as it was possible. He held a law degree from the University of Georgia, entered the National Guard in 1908, did his tours of duty, and then was assigned to the artillery school, serving as a student and then later as an instructor. From there, he attended the Command and General Staff School, then taught at the Army War College. After spending some time with the Naval War College, he was made director of the War Plan Section of the Army War College, and in September of 1940, he was ordered to the Philippines. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, and like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, 
yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As General Homa's reinforcements started coming in, and he made good use of the extra newly arrived planes and artillery pieces, his position overall was growing stronger. This has to be compared to that of the Allies. It may be remembered that back on January 6th, rations were cut in half. This was partly in response to so many soldiers and civilians reaching Bataan. The food had to be stretched out. Thus, between January and February, the defending troops received 30 ounces of food each day, which was just about 40% of their peacetime ration. The day before rations were cut in half, January 5th, it was estimated that there was enough canned meat and fish to last 50 days. As for the other items, like flour and canned vegetables, there was less than 50 days of that. So there was their good rule of thumb to start with. However, with all the fighting, the food had been consumed at a much faster rate than expected, which meant that on February 23rd, the Philippine Department Quartermaster, Colonel Frank Bezina, said that he only had two and a half days left of meat and fish and four and a half days worth of flour. At the end of February, Colonel Brazina had told his superior, we are entirely dependent upon the shipments of salmon from Fort Mills on Corregidor. And it would get worse, much worse. By the time the Allies surrendered, the troops were being given just 1.2 ounces of canned meat each day. As survival and denying the Japanese the use of Manila Bay was the main goal, the Americans and Filipinos strove mightily to find food, their number one concern, as the Japanese built up for the big push. First, two rice mills were built by mid-January. Next, foraging parties were sent out to gather pele, or unhusked rice. This was brought to the new mills. And it was the Americans who had to say goodbye to wheat and hello to rice that put them in such a foul mood. It didn't taste good. It had little nutritional value. However, one soldier remarked, ironically, rice is the greatest food there is. Anything you add to it improves it. Yet, it did fill stomachs. And that was the order of the day. As mentioned previously, it was around this time that the brave 26th Cavalry was forced to slaughter and eat some 250 horses and 48 pack mules. The last horse was shot on March 15th. This was only after some 500 caribou had been killed and consumed. After all, the Allies needed 250 tons of food to survive within their camps, and they weren't getting that. To be sure, fish was being used to augment the food supply, but the locals soon quit giving their catches to the defenders, as the two combatants exchanged more and more bullets, as the larger contest was about to get underway. As much as the Americans looked down on the Filipinos, who had no trouble eating dog or monkey meat, they quickly changed their tune as their own food ran out. Soon the Americans were eating and appreciating things like 
dog. It tasted a lot like lamb, monkey, iguanas, caribou, ponies, but few had snake, and even fewer ate the eggs from a python, even though the locals considered this a delicacy. By early April, the defenders were reduced to eating berries, though some of those were poisonous, and they also ate any edible root they could find. With war being what it is, not to mention humanity, a black market was quickly set up. It seems that everything could be had for the right price. The various authorities tried to break up this age-old practice, but greed was mightier than the sword. Another equally dismal practice was how food was unfairly distributed to the troops. Those on the front line ate the worst and least, as it was more dangerous, by definition, to get food to them. This can all be summed up with the military saying, the units to the rear always live best. The same thing could be said of cigarettes and clothing. The loss of the former hurt morale, and the disintegration of the latter meant that the men had to stay cold and wet, which led to illness, which led to an ever-reducing pool of combat-capable men. Indeed, one unit had only 10% of their uniforms pass inspection. As for the entire Philippine force, less than 24% had adequate blankets or raincoats, and overall, one-fourth of the Filipino troops were without shoes of any kind. With MacArthur gone by mid-March and the food that much more scarce by the end of the month, the fighting men of Bataan and Corregidor knew how this would end. The great MacArthur was clearly not coming back anytime soon, and supplies were barely getting through. Meanwhile, reports had been coming in about Japanese reinforcements. No, the game was all but over, but that did not mean that the dirty, starving, ragged men of Bataan, a.k.a. the bastards of Bataan, couldn't make the enemy pay dearly for their coming victory. While General Wainwright was waiting for the other shoe to drop, i.e. General Homa's renewed and reinforced attack, the new leader of Bataan was hounding Washington for more of everything, anything. But the end result, between the Japanese expanding too rapidly and the Americans being far from organized and ready for such a reversal, was negligible. What came through would not make a difference. But smashing the blockade had been given the old college try. It truly had. Still, the vast majority on Bataan would never know this. In short, the War Plans Division of the General Staff declared that trying to relieve the Philippines would require so large a force as to constitute an entirely unjustified diversion. It was against this that MacArthur as far back as January, sent message after message about running the blockade, about destroying the enemy's communications and supply lines. Basically, about going to war with Japan on a level that the Americans were simply unable to put into effect at this time. Hence, items were sent when they could be, but it was never enough to make a difference. Only alter, by a few days at most, when the defenders would have to surrender. 
And again, Washington really did try. As we have seen, General Marshall's representative came to Australia with $10 million cash to buy or rent ships and crews. However, there were few large, fast ships needed to run the blockade and few enough people willing to take on the vicious Japanese. Still, as only three ships got past the Japanese, the end result was too little, too late. Of the 10,000 tons of food that reached Mindanao, only 1,000 tons of that actually reached Bataan. But the final nail in the coffin that was the idea to supply the fighters at Bataan came in late February, early March, as Japanese planes and naval vessels freed up after the invasion of the Netherlands Indies, started a more active patrol in northern Australia. Which meant, forget Bataan for a moment, was anyone guaranteeing that supplies would still reach Australia? The Americans needed, like the British Isles, an unsinkable base in this area from which to build up and eventually launch their own attacks. To cut supplies going to Australia would make another albatross the Allies would have to deal with. And when Baptavia Java, present-day Jakarta, Indonesia, fell on March 2nd, Patrick Hurley, the man from Washington who was to organize the blockade running, knew it was all over. A message was sent by Hurley to George Marshall that read in part, Routes to Philippines from Australia and vicinity are becoming increasingly hazardous. Recommended, therefore, that Philippines be supplied from the U.S. via Hawaii. However, that alternative had already been studied and shot down by the War Department. The President himself had arranged for this examination, as he would have been only too happy to have his capital directly involved in saving and then reinforcing MacArthur and his men. But this hope was all but dashed when Wainwright told and then retold Washington that he had some 90,000 men. That was much more than the War Department had estimated for. And many of Wainwright's men were suffering from malaria. Indeed, including civilians between Bataan and Corregidor, Wainwright was responsible for some 110,000 souls. Which meant that if each and every ship had gone through, it still would not have been enough. They were back to square one. And being back at square one, there was nothing to lose. There were no bad ideas. So Lieutenant General Joseph Stilwell was asked if he could send any food to Corregidor. Stilwell did not think much of his chances, but he told Washington he would try to put something together with some of his planes and his rather adventurous pilots. However, the trying was still underway when Bataan fell. Of all the people to feel the pressure of watching soldiers waste away, General Wainwright got to see it firsthand. Hence, it should come as little surprise that when he came up with the plan on March 27th, it had fewer elements of relying on other people and their promises. No, Wainwright's plan was direct and served many purposes at the same time. The sign of a good commander. Another sign of a good commander is knowing how to play the game. Yes, MacArthur was now in Australia, but that did not stop him, as we have seen, of still trying to control everything that happened 
of Bataan. So instead of fighting this obsession of the generals, Wainwright would use it by sending his plan to the general first to get his okay. If that happened, few could stand in his way. Wainwright wanted as many bombers as possible, medium and heavy, to fly from Australia to Mindanao, which was still not entirely under Japanese control. From there, they could refuel and then make a bombing run on enemy positions in the Visayan waters, which is the waters just north of Cebu Island, and they could attack Subic Bay, which is on the northwest corner of the Bataan Peninsula. Not only would this weaken the grip the enemy had on Manila Bay, but it would provide a distraction, so food shipments currently on Cebu in the central Philippines could be taken the rest of the way to Corregidor. Further, if 10 or so B-17s could stay on Del Monte, on Mindanao, then each day they could make a round trip to Australia, bringing in something for the starving troops. Liking this aggressive attitude, MacArthur said yes and began getting bombers put together. Wainwright matched this by putting everything into place on his part. By April 4th, all was in place. Two ships with 500 tons each, one of food, the other of gasoline, were waiting at Cebu and Iolio, respectively. The two islands are in the central Philippines. The idea was for these two supply ships there were others waiting to see if this worked, to sail to Corregidor, and they would be covered by three P-40 fighters. And right before the shipments arrived, various areas in Manila Bay would be bombed, hopefully causing confusion, mayhem, and would force the enemy to overreact closer to the capital and be much less focused on Corregidor. As stated, the ships were ready back on April 4th, but no planes had landed on Mindanao yet, from Australia. Each day, another supply ship reached one of the two waiting points, but no planes from MacArthur. Then, on April 10th, the Japanese landed on Cebu. The supplies waiting there would not reach the defenders. Finally, on April 11th, the bombers landed on Mindanao. Not that it mattered, as the battling bastards at Bataan and the men on Corregidor Island had surrendered due to starvation on April 9th. By the opening of April, the Filipino and American troops were gaunt versions of their former selves, barely able to stand, much less fight. For the last three months, they had not eaten enough to maintain themselves. They had been bombed each day, and their eyes were always cast to the north. When were General Homa's men going to finish this thing? 